Welcome back to the Galaxy's Greatest Podcast about the two great 90s space station shows. This is Bob from Cascadia. I got Matt from the Southland on the line, and we're here hosting Babylon 5 versus DS9. Tonight we're talking about Babylon 5 Season 2, Episode 9, Coming of Shadows, that aired on the 1st of February, 1994. And we're talking about DS9 Season 3, Episodes 11 and 12, Past Tense, Parts 1 and 2, which originally aired on the 8th and the 15th of January in that blessed year, 1995. How you doing tonight, Matt? Doing well. Just want to go ahead and make a correction on Bob. He said The Coming of Shadows is 94, but it was actually 95. Fuck you. <laughs> It's all good, Bob. It's all good. Anyway, the, these episodes, Bob, actually were pretty good. I, I'm liking The Coming of Shadows. Good stuff. Is this the first time we've had a good Babylon 5 and a good DS9 episode on the same episode? I think so. I really do. I mean, we don't have to look back, but I think this is probably... I mean, these, these are great episodes. You know, we'll, we'll talk... As we go through, we'll talk about it, but I think Coming of Shadows... Probably the better TV, especially since it did win, like, the, oh, definitely. Uh, the Hugo definitely. Award, I believe. Ooh. It did. The Hugo Award. You know what it was up against? Uh, well, no. Next Generation was already over, so something else from DS9? No. Toy Story. <laughs> Toy Story is science fiction. Okay. Shit you not. Toy Story. Or wait, did, the Hugo Awards are just science fiction, though, right? They don't do fantasy? God. I don't. I just saw it, and it said I looked at the voting, and it was Toy Story was like number four. Apparently, people were not not fans of Toy Story at the Hugo Awards. Ceremony. No. Well, what's worse is there the D, there was a DS Nine episode below Toy Story, and it's a season four episode, I believe, called the, the Visitors. Oh yeah, yeah. That's the that's the Jake one, right? Correct. Yes, that one. Yeah, people love that episode. I actually don't love it. Well, I guess we'll get to that when we go to it. It's kind of dep- I find it depressing. Yeah, we'll get to that one later. But honestly, I kind of thought this episode we were watching this week was part of that episode. But I don't, I don't, I got them all mixed up. There's just a little bit of like time stuff going on. Confuses me. I'll be, I'll be. I'll, I'll so be. Toy Story was 1995, huh? Yeah. Well, I guess not. Yeah, 95. Feel hmm. old now, don't you? <laughs> I do. I do. Well, do you want to tell us which ones we're uh, watching today, Matt? Yeah, we're watching the one where the Narn formally declare war against the Centauri. Yeah. Wow, that was uh, that was a really creative naming. You're welcome. That's that's our Babylon Five. So in the A plot, we've got the Centauri Emperor Turhan visiting the station uh, over Jakar's strenuous objections to Commander Sheridan. And then in the B plot, we have Garibaldi trailing yet another suspicious character who uh, boards the station. But it turns out the man has a surprising message uh, from an old friend to Garibaldi and to Dolin. An old friend. An old friend. By the name of Jeffrey Sinclair. Dun, dun, dun. I, I just want to go ahead and point out from the get-go, Bob, that there is yet another assassination attempt on B5. I mean, it's a dangerous place, Matt. The price for peace is very high. Like, if you've ever had an inkling of power, you do not go to the station. I mean, you've mentioned it before, too, though, also. Uh, you know, it is a failed assassination attempt. It, it really isn't even an attempt. Would you call it that? He doesn't really go for uh, it because the dude starts. It's called aborted assassination attempt, ab- I guess I would ab- call it. Ab- aborted assassination attempt. But you've mentioned this before, though, but Jakar is once again, he's too late to act. And I'm starting to see a pattern. And since you pointed it out in previous episodes, now I'm kind of looking for it. <laughs> 
Is this something I need? No, I just think that's kind of like, you know, it's the essence of like tragic storytelling, like in Shakespeare or the ancient Greeks that you have like, you know, somebody like a misconnection or like news arrives slightly too late and there's awful consequences. So JMS goes to that well a lot, especially for Jakar and Malari, who are, you know, kind of Shakespearean characters in a way. Just wasn't there in time, dude. Just started dying from natural causes. I will say in, in defense of Babylon 5's record on assassinations, usually the assassination attempts are foiled on Babylon 5, whereas, you know, President Santiago gets killed in the Earth system. So I'm just saying, like, maybe you should prefer to go to Babylon 5 where your assassin will be drawn out into the open and thwarted as opposed to, you know, going anywhere else in the galaxy and getting got. That's actually true. I didn't think of it that way. Maybe Babylon 5 is the safest place if you, if you know you're going to be assassinated. So we got introduced to uh, two prominent um, Centauri, uh, although that ne neither survived the episode, but we meet the Emperor Turhan and we meet uh, Prime Minister Malachi, and uh, they're both played by somewhat famous actors. Did you uh, recognize either of these guys, Matt? I really didn't, but after you, uh, tell me a little bit about them, though. Tell me about Turhan. What did he do? Yeah, so they named both of the characters after the actors who played them because they're not named in the original episode. And Turhan is played by a famous Austro-Turkish actor named Turhan Bey, who apparently, when he was big in 1940s Hollywood, he was nicknamed Turkish Delight. Um, apparently he was around <laughs> Hollywood in the 40s a lot, and then he, sh he showed back up on American TV in the 90s and was like on Babylon 5 and Sequest DSV, although I don't think he... He wasn't really around any much in between like the 50s and the 90s, I believe. Have you ever had Turkish Delight, Matt? I, I have not. I, I, is it any good? Do you remember The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Yes. So do you remember like the shitty boy, uh, Edmund, I think his name is, gets like tempted by the White Witch to turn on Lion Jesus and his siblings for Turkish yes. Delight? Yes, I do remember yeah. that. So when I read that as a stupid child, I imagined that like Turkish delight must be like the best candy in the world because, mm -hmm. you know, you turn on the lion Jesus and your family for it. And then when I was uh, older and I had Turkish friends and one of them gave me some Turkish delight, uh, I realized that it's kind of disgusting and that it's not at all worth selling your soul or your family out for. Well, I learned something every day. Do not eat Turkish delight. T tell me the, tell me this though, like uh -huh. this actor, he didn't. He did not put on the 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 wig, the Centauri wig. Didn't have the Centauri hair. He did not. Okay, they bring out a wig at one point, and are like he's gonna wear it. Like it's part of like it's like a powder. It's, it's almost like these are their powdered wigs. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it seems like a mix of like powdered wigs or maybe like a phallic emblem. Yes. So tell me, does this confirm that the Centauri hair that they have is not actually their hair? Well, they, they specifically say that the women shave, right? Right. Right. So definitely, I mean, definitely these are wigs and they're not the Centauri's hair, but it, it's kind of unclear. Are the males just naturally bald or do they choose to, um, do they choose to shave? I, that That's not so clear. So what I'm, so what I'm saying is like, you could technically pull off Londo's wig. Yeah, yeah, I think I think you could snatch Wanda's wig. Okay, that's what I need to know. All right, because I was also under the impression it was their actual hair, and this kind of cleared that up for me. But I just didn't know if it was the dude didn't want to look like silly. <laughs> he seemed like a bad. He seemed a bit of a badass, Mister Turkish Delight. And 
It is kind of interesting that they do, like the Centauri Emperor Turhan, when he declines it, like he does basically say that it's a kind of vanity symbol. And so like, that's why he's not, you know, he's just, he's so old that he doesn't really care about it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Which I, I also kind of like that in, in that it was kind of establishing that it's the Centauri males who are the vain ones and the ones who kind of primp and preen in, you know, in contrast to the usual gender stereotypes we have. Yeah. But I mean, I, I think that the Centauri women just don't want to have to wash their hair. You see what kind of shit the land has to go through. Okay, so I, I've got, uh, from a wiki, I've got a relevant passage. Centauri males of high social status typically wear hair in peacock tail-shaped fans, the length and style of which are determined by relative social class. Low-class Centauri males have not been seen without helmets. Centauri females mostly or entirely shave their heads. The social significance, if any, of complete versus almost complete baldness on a female is not specified. However, uh, older females are completely bald and younger uh, Centauri females often have ponytails. So that's that's what I got for you. Thanks, Bob. Now I know everything I need to know about Centauri hair. Although that I guess it, that makes it sound like it actually might be Londo's real hair and not a wig. Yeah, it, this threw me off. It threw me off so bad from the get-go, Bob. That's Babylon 5 keeping me on my toes. Given that it's such a a, stat, a symbol of virility, it would seem, that, yeah. you know, once your hair goes, you might just wear the wig. That could be it. The old, they're just showing that he's old and he's lost his hair. I guess that's what I would have to do if I were Centauri. Yes, yes. Your, your hair is going very quickly. One man who, though, would wear the wig was Prime Minister Malachi. Tell us a little bit about him. So the actor who plays him is uh, Malachi Thorne, and uh, you might have recognized him from playing False Face in the Batman 66 show. He also uh, was the voice of the judge on, uh, on the early 90s Batman cartoon and a voice in Batman Beyond. And he had several Star Trek roles. He played the Talosian Keeper in the very first Star Trek episode, The Cage. And then in the clip show of that very first episode, The Menagerie, he plays a Commodore. And then he plays a Romulan senator in the two-part uh, Next Generation um, story, Unification. That's the one where, where like, Spock is trying to reunify Romulus and Vulcan. So he, he's gotten around. He's a Jewish-American actor. For some reason, as a kid, I was stupid and thought False Face was just like the old-school uh, 60s Batman show's version of Two-Face. But they couldn't make it, like, scary. So they just gave him that weird-ass, like mass that covered oh, his face I, 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 don't, I don't know if you're entirely wrong i mean false face was uh was a character in golden age batman comics i think but i think the i think you might be right that they didn't feel like they could get away with two-face or the makeup would be too much of a pain so they they might have gone with false face yeah. instead so he was instead the master of disguise and he liked to impersonate wealthy people that's what he did now i will say though that later on they did bring two-face into the 60s batman with the uh they did an animated film where William Shatner was Two Face, and it sucked. So, let me know. They all, they did uh, some Batman sixty six comics about five years ago, and I think Two Face shows up in those too. I think those are supposed to be pretty good, but I haven't read them. Yeah, I haven't I haven't had a chance to look at them, but yeah, I, I, I don't want to like revisit that whole sixties Batman, just because I have good memory. Well, I have like 
good memories of it and like nostalgia wise, I feel like if I went back yeah. and watched it, I'd be like, this is the dumbest stuff I've ever that's seen. That's the that's the appropriate answer. Um okay. I, I thought you were gonna say that just oh, you don't you don't want to watch a comedic Batman and I was gonna make fun of you. But no, yeah, no, 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 no that's no. actually a no, that's a legitimate concern. Yeah, it's a, a good reason to not go back. It would it would be a shame if it sucks. Yeah, I remember being cool as a kid and now I feel like if I went back and watched it, I'd be like, this is so awful. And I'd even the the movie, I may watch it, like the 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 actual live act the movie they did, that was I watched it a couple of years ago and it wasn't that bad, but that was a little different. Yeah, my boys Alan and uh, Noah swear by the the Batman sixty six movie. They say it's like really funny, especially because there's like layers of adult humor that you're not really uh, up on when you're a kid. Uh, I don't I don't know how much that would extend to the show, though. I don't think they've watched any of the show recently. All right. So back to Prime Minister Malachi. Uh, who kills this guy? Is it Rifa? Rifa's people? Uh, it's probably Rifa's people, right? Because isn't Rifa still on the station? Yes. That's what I mean. Yeah, so Rifa's it's responsible. Re- Rifa's for... allies or Rifa's agents. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Gotcha. They tried to make it seem like it was a secret, you know, having to kill off camera, and I just wasn't sure. I, I don't know if it's so much supposed to be a secret versus it's just that your your relative knowledge is supposed to reflect Malari's lack of relative knowledge as a viewer, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's deep. It's damn deep. <laughs> I did really like his uh, that he him being Lord Rifa. I really did like his description of the speech he'd had written for Malari as fiery but dignified. That cracked me up for some it's reason. Fiery but dignified. Yeah, that's, that's well. You know the 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 emperor. Uh, yeah, the emperor has these like uh, telepaths that follow him around, and there's four of them, and two travel with him at all times, and the other two remain on the the homeworld. Yeah. And I thought that was really cool because it's, you know, it's a hive mind. It's awesome. Uh, but if this is the case though, then they know that they know exactly what the emperor said to Malari in that one scene where he whispers in his ear. I actually don't. So I think the way I wrote this in the notes is a little misleading. So I wrote, they have a telepathic hive mind, meaning that the Centauri emperor has control over a telepathic hive mind, not meaning that they're a part of a telepathic hive mind. So I, I, I don't think we actually know how much the Centauri telepaths are mentally linked with the Emperor versus how much their job is just to communicate what they're seeing with each other and then let the Emperor know. Uh, I disagree with you on that, Bob. Because they look at each other when uh, Malari says something, and like when Malari says to Rifa what Turhan said, they look at each other like, uh, don't think that's right, and then they walk away. I think they know Malari lied. They might, but I mean, it, that also might just be like a he's dead look. No. Move on to the move on to the nephew, right? Yeah. And like, I mean, it's it's possible that the Emperor could use them to like mind read people around him and it's possible that he could be in mental contact with them. But I, I just don't think we know that for a fact. So what, if they're not actually linked to Turhan, then what's the whole point of them being they're, there? That they're linked to each other, that the two with him are linked to the two at the home world. And so he can keep tabs on what's going on on the home world. Okay. It just seems it's to me, it seems more like he had some, uh, he had some, put up. I'll tell you what guys hit us up on Twitter and give us an answer. Cause we need to know. Well, I, yeah, because my interpretation is that they're, you know, the Centauri Corps kind of like 
the Venetian Republic or the Roman Empire, right, is supposed to be full of like plots and intrigue and counterplots. And so their their main function is not to be telepaths for the emperor so much as to stay in stay in connection with the ones who are back on the homeworld. So if there is a conspiracy, they can let him know or they can, you know, they can keep him apprised of what's going on. It's like a communication thing, like a uh, just yeah, a, a line yeah. of communication between them. So I was under the impression they had access to everything in his mind as well. Like it was all like a big, he was like the center of the hive mind. I can see where that would be useful, but it also might be that given that the Satori Emperor is, you know, usually turned into a god after he's dead, you could also imagine that he probably, he might like want to hold himself back even from his telepaths. I don't know. Well, I will say that moving on to another Centauri representative, Veer, is annoying as hell in this episode, and I see you're like, why you hated him in the other ones. He is annoying. Yeah, Veer's the worst. Oh my god. Many people strongly disagree with this take of mine, but Viracato is the worst. Yeah, I don't, I don't like him either. He's annoying. I wish Malori yeah. would just choke him out. Speaking of uh, speaking of hands reaching out, I really enjoyed <laughs> Malari's vision and the hand reaching out from the sun, which I uh, was mentioned uh, in prior episodes. That was a really cool vision. Yeah, what the hell is that about? Why the hand coming out of the sun? You know, you, you have you know, don't you ever have prophetic visions, Matt? Not, not with like hand portentous symbols. Yeah. Well, you do see the scene. You see Malaria looking up and seeing the shadow ships, I and do. he seems younger. He seems young there, and I believe that uh, was or younger. That's a, no, that's a vision of the future. Well, no, I, when I say young, but not the I, far I, future. That's yeah, what I yeah. mean. When I say young, I mean like, and then you switch over to where he's like, I guess he is sitting on the throne, and he's much older. You can tell by yeah. his, by the face yeah. and the makeup and stuff. And then um, Jakar is strangling him. Right. Uh, what's up with Jakar's face? Jakar's choking out or going at Malari, and half his face is covered with this black thing. I mean, you know, maybe it's a red herring. <sighs> Just saying, his face covered up. It was weird. I do like that they pulled a lot of these things. Like, it was the same stuff you saw in Midnight of the Firing Line. Yeah, yeah. That was nice of them to, like, bring it all back. Yeah, yeah. No, that those visions are going to continue to be very important as the show goes on. Okay. Yeah, I tried to kind of keep up with what, what, what was going on in each scene for that. And it looks like uh, Mallory, if, I guess if he does become the Emperor, it's going to suck. So, yeah, yeah. You know. There's reasons for that. All right, so let's move into the other part of this. We, we've kind of covered the whole Centauri aspect. Let's move on to this thing with the Rangers. And I know you hate the Rangers. I and do I hate s- the Rangers. I, I will say flat out, their outfit is stupid. Did, did you did you see the outfit? I mean, do you remember what the outfit looks like? I, I remember there's a big clasp type thing that was that looks really dumb and seems like not what you would want for a covert action team. No, it looks really like medieval looking, like what you would find at like a Renaissance fair. Well, I mean, they were straight up ripped from Lord of the Rings, so yeah, yeah, it was stupid, but I will say it was good to see Sinclair again. Uh, I was glad he was there. I'm glad he's not you know just completely forgotten. It's wild to think of that, you know, they mentioned him leaving in the first episode, obviously, but then you don't actually hear from him until midway through season two. Yeah, but he's got that 90s hair now. Like, I don't know what they did. Like, why on earth they went with that? Like, if they not cut that mess and not make him look like he's supposed to? It, it's a power play on the Minbari homeworld, Matt. With their lack of hair, they really respect a, they really respect a powerful mullet. Apparently, it was just, it was disturbing. I was like, what? He looks like some, He looks like the fourth member of Genesis or something. I will say the best mullet I've seen this week was not uh, Sinclair's, but on a Doom Patrol, Brendan Fraser has an amazing mullet. 
it's ooh, it's it's I, I think it beauty. So let me get this straight with the Rangers. They're gonna gather information yes. about whatever's going on that may be yes. too sensitive for everyone to know. Yes. And they're gonna report it to Garibaldi and then I'm assuming Delin, because yes. that's who you had at the end of the episode. And that's why he's yes. called old friend. Okay. Yes. That's their and job. And also to the Minbar, also back to Sinclair and presumably the Minbari leaders on Minbar. All right. Sinclair at the end says, stay close to the Vorlon. Yes. So they need to stay close to Kosh. Yes. Do you like that uh, Sinclair has sort of picked up Kosh's vocal tics? Yeah, he... Very, very short wait, cryptic wait, sentences. Wait, 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 is Sinclair Kosh? I'm just saying he's picked up his what? vocal tics. Very, what, are you very implying similar? that Sinclair may be Kosh? I, I mean, I in the same way that I'm implying that Ivanova might be the traitor. God. Okay. Well, anyway, the Emperor wants to see Avorlon as well before he dies, and he sees Kosh, and he asks, how will this end? And Kosh says, in fire. So obviously the Vorlon is Robert Frost. <sighs> I hate you for bringing up the worst poet in the English language. I'm just telling you, uh, that's what I'm it's getting. A good, it's a good line, and then you totally ruined it by bringing up the worst poet in the English language. Some say the rule in fire, Bob. Others in ice. Oh, uh, stop it. Stop it. Stop it. You hate um, Robert Frost so much. I'm just telling you, like, at least Kosh had a part in this episode. I haven't seen him in forever, it seems like. Yeah, he, he's... Starting he's, to miss him. He was around a lot more in season one, if it feels like, than he has been in season two thus far. It was good to see his butthole of the mouth. It's nice. All I'm right. glad you've kind of overcome your fear of the uh, telescoping uh, buttholeish mouth, and now you're just <laughs> now you're just in a place to mock it. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, once once I've seen it a couple of times, I'm like, okay, it's not so scary. See, Matt, exposure therapy to snakes <laughs> would do wonders for you. We, we're gonna get you over your serpentine fears. All right. One thing I did note in this episode that I want to ask you about: Sheridan's yes. rule number twenty-nine: always make your opponent think you know more than you know. Uh, if there have been others of these that I've missed, or I don't think he's ever formulated them in that format. And I don't think that's what's going to be a common thing for him going forward. But we, we do kind of get a lot of like Sheridan's philosophies of life okay. in the season. Right. Cause like, remember when he was talking about like how he collects conspiracies in an earlier episode, but so it's not out of character with him, but I don't think I don't think he ever has before or will again like put it in these stark terms. Okay, thank God, because I was I was thinking like Ferengi rules of acquisition. I mean, come on. <laughs> you know, I just uh, bought the book of the Ferengi rules of acquisition. Oh, nice. It's a great book. Yeah, uh, I should have downloaded that. I've learned. I, I wanted a. I wanted a physical copy. I've, I've been loaning it to friends. I've been studying it and making notes. So when you. So when you do pass on, Bob, then you can. Uh, when they come to your Bury house to get, to get your body, they'll be like, "What was he reading? Oh, okay, he's got this." Oh, Ferengi rules yeah. of acquisition. I, I want you to bury me both with the Ferengi rules of acquisition and with Chairman Mao's little red book. All right. To to finish off this. The, the Babylon 5, when we went to DS9, I got one more thing I want to say. Hit the me. Lynn at the end of the episode, looking at that crystal, looked like my <laughs> grandma trying to figure out how to put a DVD in the player. Like, that was <laughs> that was terrible acting from her. God, it made me cringe. I mean, it's it's hard to act with technology. That's the same reason it's hard to be a star in a Marvel or Star Wars movie. You're just acting against a tennis ball, you know? Yeah, but it was just, ugh. That was bad. <laughs> All right, so let's move on to DS9. 
This is the one where they time travel to scary but realistic 2024 San Francisco. Depressingly realistic 2024 yes, San very Francisco. Very scary. All right, hit us with the yeah. A plot. So in the A plot, we have a transporter accident dislocating Cisco, Bashir, and Dax to the unstable year of 2024 in SF, where Dax gets rescued by a tech bro billionaire played by a madman guest star, while Cisco and Bashir are shunted into the city's internment districts for the homeless. And then in the B plot, we have Kira and O'Brien trying to figure out what went wrong and then time traveling back to various eras of San Francisco history in an attempt to find Cisco, Bashir, and Dax. Yeah. So to start this off, apparently they were going back to Earth and Cisco was planning on seeing his sister. Yeah, he's got a sister in Portlandia where the dream of the 90s is still alive. The dream of the 90s is alive in Portland, Portland. If you've never seen Portlandia, you got to watch that. I mean, you have. I'm saying it to listeners. Watch Portlandia. Hilarious. All right. We never see Cisco's sister, right? We've never seen her. Never see her. I also don't know if she's ever even mentioned again. Okay. And then another little detail about Cisco is that we're seeing him get even more fluent in the Ferengi rules of acquisitions. If you remember back to the season two finale when Quark called out Cisco for not understanding Ferengi culture. You know, uh, Cisco has done a growth. He took that to heart. Now he's learning about Ferengi culture. Yeah, he took like a Udemy class on it or something. <laughs> Did you recognize the guy who uh, played the the kind of grumpy cop, Vin? Yeah, I mean, he looked familiar, but I couldn't place him. Yeah, so he's been in an awful lot of stuff. I looked him up, and he's one of the main gangsters in the Batman animated movie Mask of the Phantasm. And then he was in, do you remember the Dixon Hill episode of the first Dixon Hill episode of Star Trek The Next Generation? He yeah. plays like a newsstand vendor in that. Okay, yeah, he's got that New Yorker kind of look thing going. Yeah, yeah, he's got he's got a perfect look to be a, you know, a gangster or a grumpy cop. Uh, well, another actor in this was Frank Military. He was the guy that plays BC. Does he mm. not look like a time-displaced Chris Pratt? Now that you mention it, it's hard to unsee. Yeah, it freaked me out. I was like, whoa, that looks like Chris Pratt with long hair. <laughs> yeah. So um, I enjoyed the kind of upstairs-downstairs divide they had going here between Cisco and Bashir, you know, winding up in the internment districts versus Dax, you know, winding up with the tech billionaire. Uh, I, you know, I, there's a lot that's a little clumsy about this two-parter, but I actually did think that was pretty good writing. Yeah, and it was interesting, but looking at the upstairs world, or the upstairs part of this world, would you want to live there? I mean, you know, I want to live in a world of equality and justice, Matt, where I don't have the burdens or uh, guilt of uh, money and privilege. But, I mean, if my options are the tech billionaire or internment district, I'm going to go tech billionaire. Yeah, but tech, tech billionaire look boring as hell. And I don't mean that just in like a, a like, oh, like they, I, I had trouble like even watching that part of the episode because it was so boring. Yeah, it was kind of funny how he kept, he basically just hooked Dax up with like an internet access and then like she was like hacking everything, you know, like came up with like fake IDs for herself and such. That yeah. was kind of interesting. Yeah, they got to have that code to get on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It is, it is kind of interesting that you get the kind of, along the lines of like the kind of class struggle theme of this episode, 
you get a kind of interesting political decision where Cisco's or political divide rather between Cisco and Bashir. And Cisco, because he studied the 20th and the 21st century, is a lot more sympathetic to people in the 20th and 21st century. And he's kind of pointing out to Bashir that like the way they live and like, you know, the post-scarcity socialist utopia of the Federation, they just can't translate that back to the different historical conditions of the early 21st century. And so Cisco seems to be much more forgiving of people, whereas Bashir just can't get over his horror of like all the untreated mental illness, the untreated physical illness, the, the addiction. And, you know, he just makes the point that this is outrageous, not just for their time, but also for the time of the early 21st century, that a lot of these problems could be easily solved, but people just have decided not to solve them. Well, and that's why at the very end of the episode, he flat out asked the last, the last thing you hear is him asking, how could they let things get so bad? And yeah, yeah. True. Which is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. When it, it feels especially timely cause I, I live in Seattle and we just had a, we just had a, a mayoral election that was really dominated by the homelessness crisis in the city and like the backlash candidate won, the reactionary guy who's, you know, not going to do anything to get homeless people off the streets. He's just going to increase police sweeps of homeless encampments. And I don't know, it's just, it's just really depressing because, you know, like, like San Francisco and Portland, Seattle has seen an astronomical increase in homelessness in the past 10 years. But we, we're not, you know, despite our reputation as being like, oh, we're such a liberal city. We, we don't actually do very much. We don't give people shelter, or give people housing. We just let them sit in these, you know, giant outdoor camps that oftentimes, you know, have some violence and some human trafficking associated with them. And the only thing our voters and our public officials can come up with is, well, we should let landlords do whatever they want and uh, we should use the police against them. And it's just deeply depressing. Yeah, I don't know where they're going to push them to in Seattle either. Are they supposed to go live in the woods or something? I mean, I think that's ultimately they want to. I think that's the new the new mayor's goal is just to push them onto the other cities in the in Western Washington and let them deal with it. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I'm thinking because that's sad. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that seems to that seems to be a common theme. Like, there's this really irritating, uh, really irritating guy who's been making the Fox News rounds the past couple of weeks who has a book out about like the homeless crisis in San Francisco. And he, he claims he's like a pragmatic liberal who really wants to solve it. But, you know, really it seems like mostly what he wants to do is to just displace uh, the homeless people from SF to other parts of Northern California. And it's just like, you know, like the only solution to this is is, you know, to have universal mental health care and to get people, you know, shelter and housing in pretty quick order. Like there's no other, not, nothing else is adequate to it. So kind of like building a big, like place for them to stay. Right. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, we need public housing. We also need, we also need to like make sure that um, rent stays affordable in the city. It's not a coincidence in Seattle and SF that the, you know, the rising rates of homelessness correspond to rising rates of rent. And so, you know, we need more housing, but we also need to make sure that people aren't displaced from the housing they're already in. And we need, you know, we need to build public housing to house these people. And we, again, we also need to address the underlying issues of economic insecurity and drug addiction that make people homeless. Yeah. So this episode points out you know, three different types of people who are staying within these cities. Yeah. You got the gimmies, the dims, and the ghosts. 
All right, and the gimmies are useful members of society who are just looking for work and shelter. The dims are people who have mental health problems, and the ghosts are criminals and gangs, correct? Yeah, yeah, and specifically, they the ghosts just seem to prey on other homeless people, not just uh, not not necessarily like non-homeless people. They just seem to exploit the most vulnerable people. I will say that the name gimmies has like a negative connotation to it that doesn't quite fit what it's supposed to mean. <laughs> it threw me off at first. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of weird, right? Because it's talking about people who could easily, you know, uh, go back to work. And but it, you know, it, it's a kind of it is a kind of weird and disparaging name for yeah, that you heard kind it's of like, person. It's like give me this, give me that, give me this, give me, yeah. That's what I hear, and I'm like, that's not really what it is. It's although pretty, I mean, dim is pretty, uh, pretty yeah, uh, disparaging yeah, yeah. and offensive in its own way. Yeah, that's worse, but yeah. Um, yeah. I, another bit of terminology I enjoyed from this was we find out at one of the fancy billionaire parties that Dax uh, gets invited to that in France there's a political struggle between the Neotrots and the Gaullist, which I thought was uh, pr- pretty funny. Um, just, you know, like so the Gaullists would be conservative nationalists who followed Charles de Gaulle, who was the leader of France um, in after World War II, and then Neotrots would be people who were new versions of Trotskyist, which is, you know, an offshoot branch of Marxism. Although, actually, if you look at French politics right now, it's not at all dominated by neo-trots or Gaullists. It's dominated by uh, neoliberals and, um, how would you say, uh, fascists. So, uh, actually, things are, you know, it's much, much worse uh, than, uh, than this episode predicted about French politics. Yeah. Um. What do you think of Avery Brooks acting in this when he switches over to Bell? Like he goes from after Bell is killed, he kind of has to switch roles. Yeah, yeah. Um, I really liked it. He get, he gets over the top and a lot more aggressive and expressive. And like we see him, especially like having to intimidate one of the ghosts, mm-hmm. who's like a rival source of power during the uprising. So I I thought it was good work. I I don't think I thought of as highly of it as you did, because um, I definitely thought like. Jakar and Londo and even the Emperor on this on the Coming of Shadows did a lot better work this week than Avery Brooks, but it it, it was really interesting and fun. Bob is referring to the segment we have not reached yet. We'll be there in a moment. All right, keep going. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I I also did want to say that at the beginning of part two of Past Tense, around the time that Avery Brooks has to you know dial up the cheese factor, the ham factor. Um, there is a reference to one of the greatest uh, moments in film, which is um, the one of the ghosts is like, if they move, kill them all, which uh, is from the Wild Bunch. At the opening credits of that movie, you have um, William Holden yelling that and then you smash cut to directed by Sam Peckinpah, which is, I just think, really funny. Did you catch uh, in part two, that was Ron Hatward's brother, was the guy that steals the com badge? Um I don't know if I would have, but I and, until I but I saw Ron Howard or rather I saw Clint Howard's the brother's name in the opening credits, and so then I was looking for him. I don't know if I would have caught it beside that. And he's been a Trek before, right? Yeah, yeah. This is the second of four Trek appearances, and it's only his first one as a human. The first time he shows up, he's a child in I think it's the maybe the third episode of uh, TOS to air. He plays the uh, the uh, child-looking alien uh, Baylock in the mm-hmm. Corbinite Maneuver. 
and then he plays uh, this character, and then he plays a Ferengi on Enterprise, and then he played an Orion drug dealer in, the, I think, the season finale of Disco Season 1. I bet you Andy Griffith was just, like, filming in the set next door, and they're like, hey, we need, a, we need somebody to play that kid. Uh, Opie's busy right now, so grab his brother. <laughs> Put a uh, beanie on his head, and we'll go with it. Was, was Mayberry, the next generation, yeah, still yeah, going in yeah. 1995? <laughs> yeah, but... Uh, I was actually reading up on this, and Iggy Pop was originally supposed to play this role, but uh, if you know Iggy, would eventually go on to play the Vorta Yelgen in the sixth season episode. Yeah, I'm really glad they saved Iggy Pop for a, for a Vorta role instead of yeah. wasting him on this relatively minor role. Yeah, I was, I was, I'm glad they did that too. He's also like one of the only like recognizable Vorta I remember from this show. I mean, there's the the three who stick out to well, actually four Vorta stick out to me. So there's the female Vorta. There's Kivan, there's the Iggy Pop Vorta, and then there's Wayun, of course. Yeah, I used to. Some at one point though, I think when I was younger, I got Wayun mixed up with the Iggy Pop Vorta Yelgen, and I was like, learn to separate the two. They're not the same person. <laughs> see, see, folks, you can recover from facial blindness. It's yeah, not yeah. a lifelong condition. Yeah. With with the right medicine and education, you can overcome. When you're, it. When you're ten years old, watching this shit, you know, <laughs> like you, you don't, you can't discriminate between things. Um, all right, so. One thing I do want to hit on this episode is that the time travel piece. Yeah, yeah. I was super annoyed with the explanation for why the Defiant was not affected by the time alterations. Like, it made me, like, want to just turn the episode off. I was so annoyed because I sat there listening. I'm like, they're like, the Federation, it's gone. But I'm like, well, if, well, if the Federation's gone, you're gone. What? What? I'm just, like, yelling at the TV and waiting. For, and then they come up with this explanation. Oh, the, the temporal wave passed over them. Huh? Yeah, we were we were we were in some kind of distortion field. Now the ship is just traveling I wherever mean, it wants to. That's basically the same thing that happened in First Contact. I know it's so stupid. I don't like it. Well, no, well, actually, no, Bob, because in First Contact, the ship actually goes back in time with them. So I get that well, part. No, 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 no. They it, it get, they get caught in the wake, and so they're sheltered, and then they figure out that it's changed, and then they time travel. Okay. Because like it, it's that's like right. the Earth, it's like a Borg Earth before they time travel. Yeah. Same thing with the well sounds too, right? Star Trek Four. Yeah, that sounds right. I don't remember well, Star Trek Four as well, but that well, now right. I just feel stupid because this is what they always do, and it always sucks. So, way to go! Well, right. I don't, th I don't think in Star Trek Four that the Earth actually changes. I think it's just they see the chaos and they figure out that they need the whale to answer the call, and so they time travel. I don't think you see like future devastated Earth. Yeah. Well, and also the ending piece. It's like everything is back to normal except for Bell looking like Cisco. There's yeah. no way. Well, so you're that's because you work off that bullshit like Back to the Future, like oh you do you do anything different and everything changes. Yeah, butterfly more, effect. Yeah, yeah, that's bullshit. They're they're more working off the holistic <laughs> thing of like oh if things go broadly as they did then they'll turn out broadly similar. Bob's like that's bullshit time travel. It's not how yeah, it works. no, that is bullshit. Travel. <laughs> it's not how it works. He knows. No, Bob knows. Because yeah, I do know. Because like you're you're working off that like hyper American individualism that thinks everybody is a special snowflake, <laughs> and that if the wind blows the snowflake in just the wrong way, then nothing could be the same. When in reality, Matt, human beings aren't that important, and we're pretty replaceable. And so you know, it doesn't particularly matter if it's Gabrielle Bell or Benjamin Sisko leading the motherfucking Bell riots, as long as somebody leads those riots. <laughs> that's the important thing. That's the message of past tense. Lead the riot. It doesn't matter if your name is Gabrielle. Bell. Well, all right then, Bob. Um, <laughs> just, just way to 
Want to take that to a whole new level? All right then. Yeah, yeah. We're just gonna have to. We're just gonna have to agree to disagree on this one. All right. Snowflake. Yeah. So when Kira and O'Brien go back to find the lost crew, Kira's nasal strip disguise is hilarious to me. Did you? Yeah, it, it, it's some good gags, especially how self-conscious she is about yeah. it. But if you don't, if you remember though, in a few episodes before, she was turned into a convincing Cardassian, and she actually questions her own identity. Like, do they not have something that could just like cover that up, some makeup oh, or something? I, I, I can no prize that. So, usually the uh, the surgeries to make you appear like you're another species happen on like a full. Uh, a full medical bay, a full sick bay in a real starship. Uh-huh. But the Defiant is so stripped down that, you know, basically all the sick bay is on the Defiant is just like, you know, the barest sort of casualty helping. And so, and also, you know, their doctor has disappeared in time. So they don't really, you know, they can't really do all the surgeries to make Kira look fully human. And also they're kind of working on a clock. So and you're also telling me that, that Kira doesn't have some concealer to just put on her nose. I mean, it would take a lot of concealer, man. She's got very impressive ridges. I just, I just like that it's like it's perfectly fine, but she gets so self-conscious about it that she draws attention to it in the yeah. '60s. That was really funny. Or no, it wasn't the '60s. It was the '40s. The '40s, yeah. 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 All right. So <laughs> one other thing I want to point out about this episode, we can move off to our watches. When it comes to production values, you can always tell that DS9 was a '90s show when they actually leave Deep Space Nine. And I feel like I've mentioned this before that B5 looks so cheap compared to DS9, mm-hmm. like with production values, like the actual station itself. And you can tell that producers put a ton of money into that to make it look, you know, is almost like movie quality at that point. Um, but if you, whenever they leave the station and they go to San Francisco or they go onto a planet or anything like that, it does look like a product of the mid 90s. I think you're broadly right, but I do have one thing that I kind of might point out. And I I got this from the documentary about DS9. Wasn't it called What We Left Behind? Mm -hmm. Um, They mentioned that they especially do a lot of shooting on the DS9 station in a kind of film noir style. So there's a lot of shadows. There's a lot of kind of like high angles. And I think shooting it in that noir style does help to kind of disguise the set a little bit and to make it feel a little more plausible than the more kind of like starkly and brightly shot Babylon 5 sets. So you're saying if you and I were to like go to the DS9 set, it would look like Friends or something? I think so, yeah, yeah. Okay. Or at least like, you know, because they use a lot, they use a lot darker colors just in the set design for the Cardassian architecture and then the way they shoot it, there's a lot more shadow and a lot more like, you know, canted angles. So it's not, you know, like you could you could shoot the show in a different way and it might look a little cheaper to the contemporary audience is what I'm saying. Yeah. All right, so let's move on to our watches. We'll start with Thirst Watch. Yeah, it really feels like uh, everybody's uh, been thirsty for Dax this season. It feels just like every every episode there's somebody thirsting over her. And why wouldn't they be, Bob? Why wouldn't they be? I mean, Terry Farrell's a very attractive lady, Matt. Yep. Gotta get some and cure the- love out there. <laughs> so I, I already preached about this a little, but I'll just say kind of briefly for Econ Watch. So one of my favorite scholars who writes about Star Trek is a Hegelian trot named George Gonzalez. And he has a kind of really interesting argument about this episode where he sees the Bell riots as being kind of similar to how American Trotskyists have predicted a third U.S. revolution. So, you know, we had the first one 
to win independence from the from the British Empire. And then we have the second one where uh, Abraham Lincoln used the Union Army to smash slavery in the South. And then, you know, so we need a third one to uh, make the foundation for America and Earth to go in a globalist and socialist direction. And kind of interestingly, um, Gonzalez really likes this political vision in past tense, and he kind of really likes the idea that the Bell Riots are kind of the foundation for the United Earth Government and then for, you know, the Federation of Planets. And he really dislikes the version about how Earth um, gets united and gets into the galaxy in first contact. He thinks it's a, a lot more regressive and a lot more kind of like you know, binaristic friend enemy. So I, I just think that's a kind of interesting thing to think about how you could read the Bell Riots as being the origin of the Federation, or you could read like the first contact with the Vulcans um, in the movie as being the origins for the Federation. So let me ask you this, Bob. Are we going to get a Bell Riot moment from down below in Babylon 5? I, I mean, it seems like one is needed almost as much as one is needed uh, in Earth right now. All right, then. Good answer. Good answer. All right. <laughs> what you got for us on Shadow Watch, Matt? Well, Shadow Watch, we did see some Shadow ships destroying the Narn Colony in Quadrant 14, and they are extremely badass. They can destroy stuff, you know, very quickly. They're efficient. The colony really had no, well, I mean, they didn't have any way to really defend themselves to begin with because I believe a lot of their ships showed up later, right? Mm -hmm. They were late. So. There's that, and then also Sinclair, after making his comment about the Vorlon, says, watch out for the shadows. They move when you are not looking at them. I don't, dun, know, dun, that, dun. I don't know what that means. All right. Well, I mean, that's, you know, shadows, man. They're, they're, they're sneaky. They're creepy. Okay. Sheridan warns Malari that uh, observers may go to the Quadrant and find out how the Centauri forces were able to attack so quickly. Like, that's his like, whole thing with Malari at the end. Yeah, I really like the machinations that Sheridan pulled there. It kind of really shows what a kind of astute politician he is. I like that a yeah. lot. And Mallory had to kind of think fast that, you know, he's going to have to compromise because he doesn't want them to go out there and find out that the shadows are the true people who made the attack, not the Centauri. That's so Mallory yeah, yeah, knows, exactly. knows that he's dealing with something that's like super powerful mm -hmm. and, uh, way faster as far as attacking goes than anything they've dealt with before. Yeah, yeah. No, very good. Very good. Who was your character of the week? Uh, I'm going to go with Cisco. I feel like his acting pretty much carried both parts of past tense. You know, if I were going to uh, pick somebody from DS9, I think I actually might have picked Bashir. Even though, like, Cisco did a lot more, like, heavy lifting on the acting, I just felt like this might be the first Bashir episode where he's just a likable fun guy and like his kind of outrage at, you know, the awfulness of San Francisco in 2024 or 2021 really was kind of endearing. So I, I, I really like, I, did, I really did like Bashir in this episode. I would say. I agree with you on that. This was, this is one of the better Bashir episodes we've seen so far. Yeah. Yeah. They're finally getting a feel for him. Um, that said, I, I would have to give it to Jakar. It was a great episode for him. Um, I really like, uh, how content he was once the Kari gives him permission to assassinate Turhan. He just kind of gets this kind of like peaceful idea of like, okay, this is the decision. And then his rage about like, you know, his lack of capacity to act after the war starts. And he's like just wailing on the B5 security forces. I really like that. 
So episode of the week though, Bob, I'm gonna go with Coming of Shadows. Just Absolutely. damn good episode. Great yeah, episode. Yeah. Probably one of the uh one of the lynch points for the se- the seasons we've watched so far. Like this is one you have to watch. Must watch. Yeah, so I mean that seems to be like the Babylon five rhythm, right? Is about midway through the season you have an episode that just kinda snaps everything into focus. Yeah. And kinda gets clear. Do you we had that in the first season too, right? Uh, it was Signs Importance. Right. I think that was like episode 13 maybe yeah. of season one. So I was kind of curious, Would you did you prefer Signs Importance or did you prefer uh, Coming of Shadows? Uh, I think Coming of Shadows. Uh, I, I mean, I like Signs Importance, but the Coming of Shadows to me just seems like, it feels like we're going into a a new part of the plot that like, I feel like season one was kind of introducing us to all the characters and these first couple of episodes of season two have been introducing us to some of the new characters that weren't there before, like Sheridan, but also kind of fleshing mm-hmm. out some of the ones that we haven't really talked about too much. And there've been little hints of things that are building up, but now this episode is full force, like boom, there's going to be a war. Yeah. 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 And I, f- I feel like the first half of season two has, I mean, I think it's probably been better on average than season one, but it still has a lot of season one energy. Mm-hmm. Whereas now it kind of feels like we're snapping more into the overall plot. I will say, I, I'll i be curious if my if my memory is correct, but my memory of this is that the back half of season two and then season three and the first half of season four, like that's the intense part of Babylon 5. That's the part where everybody, that's why everybody thinks it's one of the best science fiction shows ever made. Okay. Nice, nice. Anything else, Matt? No, I think we're, we've pretty much covered it. I don't think there's anything else we can talk about. Now, next week, we're going to deal with the Babylon 5 episode, Gropos. Oh, God. I, I, say, I say the back half of uh, season two is great, and then <laughs> Gropos is up next. <laughs> Not a great episode. DS9, we're going to have the episode Life Support, which seems to be a, an episode that focuses on Dr. Bashir and Vedic Baral. That doesn't sound promising. Nope, not at all. But we'll, I we'll mean, get, maybe we'll maybe we'll be pleasantly surprised. We Hell, will. Gropos might actually win next week. Mm. That's shocking. I would have thought Gropos would not win. <laughs> Gropos, all right. ground pounders for those who don't know. All right. So, uh, all right. Well, this has been Babylon Five versus DS Nine, the galaxy's greatest podcast about the two great '90s space station shows. I am Bob from Cascadia. That's Matt from the Southland. Have a good night, everybody. And remember, Gabrielle Bell was right. Thanks for listening.